You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we are going to be this morning. You can also put a marker in Psalm 89. We are in a kingdoms study, which ultimately is contrasting man's kingdoms and ideas with God's singular kingdom. And then as we're in the Psalms, titled it Kingdom Melodies. So we have a melody to sing out of God's word today. But as we ended last week in chapter 12, last week we focused on the idea of choices and the power that God has given to us in the choices that we make every single day. Last week I gave you the statistic that we make 35,000 decisions, choices, big ones and little ones every single day. So since the last time we were gathered in this room, that means we've had 250,000 decisions in the last week. How'd you do? Thumbs up? I'm more honest than that. I didn't do too well. I had some decisions, great. Others' decisions, not so much. Today is Julie's and my 23rd wedding anniversary. It's awesome. This marks the end of a very busy week. I have had the opportunity and the busyness of even this morning to look at her and nod and say happy anniversary. I have the next couple of days off, which is good, but for those of you who know, we just dropped our boys off at, uh, at college, so we are officially empty nesters. Our daughter's been at home for the weekend, but she's going back to college also, so I haven't felt that emotion of empty nesting this week, but sitting in the, my relationship with my wife, so we're, what we're going to press in today is the feelings behind the choices that we make. So this week, and Julie, before, before the last couple weeks have gone on, she's, she looked at me in the face, Blake, I need you to be tender with me, gentle. She's going through this experience as mom. I'm going through it as dad, right? We operate a little differently, moms and dads, yes? So yesterday, you know what? I am sick of decorating. I, am, I don't care if the boys eat or not. They'll figure it out. When their bellies tell them, they'll go find food. So yesterday, after, after these, the parent meetings at the campus that we're at, um, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to get in the car and come home. But I know that that's not on the agenda. The agenda is to finish decorating the rooms, you know, all these command strips that you get on the wall and make everything look pretty, and mom's there walking alongside the boys, helping them out in this final push. Mom needs to make sure that the boys have snacks in the rooms. She needs to make sure that they stay thick and not uh, waste away uh, from not eating food that they don't like. So we need to go to the grocery store and all those kinds of things. But while in the grocery store, my feelings, I don't want to be here. Guys, anybody hate shopping? I don't, I don't like shopping. It creates a feeling in me. And I have to keep that feeling in check. But we're going to press into the idea of our emotions, the emotions that God has given to us. They are an imprint, an image of who he is. God is emotive. We are told that he has pleasure. He has love. He has anger. And situations bring about different emotions in him as he expresses himself to us in our lives. 
So as we go through our daily life, we are being motivated by the feelings that we're having in the moment. And sometimes our feelings can lead us down the path of truth in the Lord. Often our feelings lead us down very bad paths to make very bad decisions in our life, small ones and big ones and everything in between. So as we sit in the narrative today in 1 Samuel 13, we are coming again on the tail end of Samuel's final words at, at the, this final coronation of Saul as king. He's encouraging them to fear the Lord at the end of chapter 12, serve him in truth with all your heart, consider what great things he has done for you, how important it is to constantly consider the Lord, what great things he has done specifically for you individually and how that is to motivate the choices that we make. Verse 25, having that warning, if you, do, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And for those of you who know the story of Saul, we will watch him be swept away. And today is the beginning of that, of that proclamation in Saul's life. Uh, but as we continue into chapter 13, I want you to just keep in, keep in your mind that we're going to be talking about feelings. We're going to be talking about emotions. So as we're going through Samuel, it's, it's a variety of character studies. Um, this morning, the title of the message is not feelings, it's loyal. And this whole idea of what it means that God is loyal to us, what it means in Saul's lack of loyalty to the Lord and to the people. We watch Samuel in his loyalty. We are going to watch God define David as a loyal man. Even in his sin and his issues, he receives that call to repentance. I love this came up in the, in the hallway on Wednesday night, talking to Marvina and Natalia and Robbie. She brought up this word, loyal. And as I turned to this text and really pressed into it and study this week, we're going to look at Jonathan this morning. Jonathan, is a, his character is consistently defined as loyal. In his relationship with the Lord, in his relationship with his dad, Saul, and his relationship with David, he was a loyal man. So we're going to focus on our feelings and how those will ultimately are to bring about loyalty, firmness, steadfastness in our relationship with the Lord that is always a response to his loyal love towards us, which is what Psalm 89 talks about. All right, so there is our path for this morning. So 1 Samuel 13, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, as I read through that, if you have a different version of the Bible, I'm reading from the New King James. This, this sentence is very difficult. It's, it's missing numbers. So it provides, uh, it, it's difficult in its translation because it's missing. Because Saul reigned, they think that it's supposed to be a, a reference to how old he is at this point. We don't know exactly. So some people say, hey, he's roughly 30 years old. Others will say 40 as we get into the passage, his son Jonathan is old enough to lead a fraction of the army, a third of the army underneath Saul. 
So we were introduced to Saul when he was being ordained as king that he's a young man. He's a young, choice, good-looking man. So this is, it's hard to know exactly how old Saul is. The New Testament tells us that he reigns for 40 years in total. Um, so most ideas are going to press into, hey, Saul is roughly 30 to 40 years old in verse 1 here of chapter 13. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, here is the event that is occurring. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. Remember the, the privilege of a king and what a king of this world will do and of the nations. He will take men for himself. So Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, sent away every man to his tent. So again, with Jonathan, we are not given any of his background. We learn later on that he is Saul's son. Um, but he is going to be a major player and major, major character in both Saul's life and in David's life as Saul's son and definitely as David's best friend. Uh, he is a loyal man throughout. Verse 3, Jonathan, he attacked. He attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. So remember, up until this point, we are told that earlier on under Samuel as judge that the, that the Philistines were subdued all the days of Samuel. The days of Samuel are gone, even though Samuel's still alive, because now we've rolled into the days of Saul. And the Philistines, you know, they're, they're building themselves up. The, this demand for a king is definitely part of what's going on with the Philistines. This is exactly why the, the Jews want a king like all the other nations, is to go out to war for them. So here Saul has chosen 3,000 men, 2,000 are with Saul, 1,000 are with Jonathan, and Jonathan is taking it upon himself. You know what? Let's, let's go start pecking away at the Philistines. Saul hears of it. When he hears of it, Saul blows the trumpet. It's a victory. Uh, it's a victory blast to proclaim throughout all the land of Israel, saying, let the Hebrews hear, let the Hebrews hear the victory that we have just had over the Philistines. Verse 4, now all his, Israel heard it. Uh, heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination, literally a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Some of the idea, I'm not sure how deep you want to get into applying this in Saul's character. Um, I'm not sure if he's just blowing the trumpet and Jonathan underneath Saul, hey, it's all related to Saul's kingdom, the victory that occurred, or if Saul is really seizing uh, Jonathan's victory and claiming it for himself as he's proclaiming to all the land. Uh, with Saul's issues, you can definitely see that secondary thing where he needs the attention. He ne in, his, in his insecurity, he needs the credit is... A part of his character that we can definitely see. So now they are stinking in the lands as in their relationship with the Philistines. So all the people are called together to Saul at Gilgal. This is close to Jericho. 
says, the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. My translation says 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Again, most believe that 3,000 would be the right number. These are the tanks of the days. If it's 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, that's two men for every chariot. So that kind of lines up mathematically. But this is the issue. There were people there as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. The stench, the aroma that the Hebrews are causing to the Philistines that are in the land, that aroma is welling up hatred, and they're going to do something about what Jonathan just did. So, Philistines are there and in a multitude. You can picture like the movie scenes. You get up on a hill and you just see this, this mass of people. This, and it's in their multitude. You can't count it just like you couldn't count the sand on the seashore. They came up and encamped against Michmash. Literally, they're laying siege against this, this fortress. It's called Michmash. It literally means hidden to the east Bethaven, which is the house of vanity. Total side note here, it only stands out to me. I'm an Ecclesiastes in my personal devotions. I'm going to be in it for an extended season because I'm going through it really slow, and it's, it's actually a, a, a wisdom document that I enjoy greatly. For those of you who know what Ecclesiastes is about, everything's vanity. Outside of God, outside of eternity, if this life is all that we have and it's temporary nature and the work that we do and, and all of our activities and everything that's going on, this world ends up just being a house of vanity, this, this Bethaven, and Bethaven is going to come up again. That has nothing to do with this morning. Just side note, welcome to my personal heart, and that's what I'm pressing into as I'm reading this. All right, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, literally, they're surrounded, they're, they're enveloped. For the people, they were distressed, they were, they were hard-pressed on every side by the Philistines. It says that the people, listen to this, they hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. Last week, when Saul was being uh, presented as king, where was he as, as the lots were whittled down to Saul of the tribe of Benjamin? Where, where was Saul found? Hiding. Hiding in the baggage. There, there, is a, there is a biblical principle that is very true in all of our lives. As you lead your own household, your own social circles, lead in work, you lead in the congregation, there is an effect that leaders have upon others around them. And there is, there, is a, there is a tie to what the people are doing here rather than taking courage in the Lord and pursuing the Lord in this moment as they know that they should. The emotion that they are feeling in their pressure, in their feeling of oppressed, in the seashore of men in opposition to them that they see is to hide themselves. It was the same pressure as Saul is being placed into a position that he didn't raise his hand for. He was hiding himself from it because it wells up emotions of fear and insecurity for him. So we're watching the people image 
what's the behavior of the leader that God has placed over them. We're going to see next week when Jonathan, if you remember when he and his, his armor bearer go up and they attack a few Philistines, the Philistines are looking at them. They make this comment, look, here's some Hebrews that have crawled out of their holes. Because this is, again, as, they, as the people are, they're, they're scattering, they're in fear, and they're hiding. So not only are they hiding in all of these different places, it says some of the Hebrews, so Gilgal is on the west side of the Jordan River. They cross over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And again, this is, they're in the promised land. They're in the land that God has promised to them to be their God, to be their king, to be their protector, to be their provider. And again, in their emotion, in their feelings, in what they're seeing and what they're processing through, they're turning away from God. They're going back over the, the river that they ought not to go back over. They're going anyways. It's all of this emotion is being... Uh, brought up in this narrative. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, but they're trembling. And again, you can, you can feel this imaging the leader. Saul is not a confident man. He is an insecure man. You can feel Saul himself trembling and not knowing what to do in this circumstance. And that he is, the people are taking on that image rather than that confidence and boldness that he ought to have in the Lord as the Holy Spirit has already come upon him historically, as the Lord has anointed him and given him signs that this is the role that the Lord has called him to. And that role includes war. He's trembling. He's in his head. He's in his emotions. He's in his feelings. So it says here in verse 8 that he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. That has nothing to do with the, an earlier timing that we didn't get when Samuel showed up. We don't have that scene recorded. This is just in this interaction of what's going on. There's been a conversation between Samuel and Saul. As Saul's there in Gilgal, Samuel says, hey, I'm going to be there in seven days. Wait for me. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered. Saul is watching the people leave. They're fearful. They're trembling. They're departing. He's watching all of this in his head and in his emotions and in reality. This is the scene that's presented before him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might bless him. Now that last sentence there, he might bless him. He, who's the he and who's the him? One, I'm hoping that the he is Saul is going out to Samuel so that Samuel would bless him because that's what he's looking for in the moment. This is why he performed the sacrifice. This is why he's waiting for Samuel as that other leader in the community, that spiritual leader. Saul wants God's blessing and he's done something in disobedience and he's hoping that Samuel is going to be there to bless him, not greet, but to bless him and to favor him. But again, there's that twisting of Saul's heart where most of the commentators think that Saul in his sacrifice and seizing the role of priest to himself in this moment that he 
Saul is going and thinking that he is going to be the one to bless Samuel. Totally out of order. But again, what is it? I don't know. You take your choice on how you define he and him and press into the ideas of both. And here's a great question. Samuel said, what have you done? This is great. My brain immediately turned to the book of Genesis as I read this line, but I popped this phrase into my software and searched. What have you done comes up as a question all over the place. When God shows up to Adam and Eve in the garden, and Adam makes an excuse and says, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. And then God looks at Eve and says, what have you done? Now, when you hear this question, do you feel the finger being tapped in your chest in anger? What have you done? Have you ever responded in that feeling of emotion? What did this person do? Why did they do it? How could you do that? Have you ever had that feeling? It's not God's heart. God's heart is an invitation. You've missed. What have you done? It's an opportunity to confess. It's an opportunity to reconcile. So when you hear Samuel say to Saul, what have you done? It's a father to a son. Samuel loves Saul. And we're going to watch him grieve and mourn over, over Saul's behavior in later chapters. So this question that Samuel is giving to Saul, what have you done? It's an opportunity for Saul to make confession. It's an opportunity to say, here's what I did. Here's why I did it. Here's how I did it. I need to sacrifice. You're right. There's, there's a process of restoration and cleansing that God prescribed for this kind of behavior where he's been disobedient. But listen to how Saul responds to the question, what have you done? And again, you can go sit in other chapters. To Eve, what have you done, Eve? It's the serpent's fault. Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It was an opportunity for Cain to confess. Pharaoh and Abimelech to Abraham two different times in, in Genesis. What have you done? Why did you do this? It's all over the pages of the Old Testament. And again, it's an inv invitation for confession and reconciliation. Saul said, listen, this is, this is all true. When I saw the people, they were scattered from me. And then I saw that you, you didn't come within the days appointed. And I, I see all the Philistines that are gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines, they're now, they're now going to come down on me at Gilgal. And I haven't made supplication to the Lord. I haven't prayed to the Lord. A sacrifice hasn't been made. I haven't gone through this religious ritual. Therefore, I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. And this is feeling. So what did Saul do in the moment when the door is open for confession? He stepped through the door of excuses. It's the people's fault. If they stuck with me, I wouldn't have to do this. It's your fault, Samuel. If you would have come on the day you told me you would have been here, 
I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have felt the need. I wouldn't have felt restricted and confined. This is my only option. I had to do this. If all those Philistines weren't down there, you know, if my son Jonathan didn't do this and all these issues that are going on that has led up to this point, if all those people weren't there, then I wouldn't have felt compelled to do this. Now let's really press into the ideas of your feelings. Have you ever felt compelled? You have just responded to a circumstance and you're angry. What do you feel compelled to do? I have to lash out. I have to yell. I have to get revenge. I have to fix this. In that moment of lust, I have to look. In that moment of being alone, in that moment of depression, or maybe, you know, drugs in your background, I have to have a drink. I have to take these pills. Do you ever feel restricted and compelled like you have no other option than to do what your feelings are directing you to do in that moment? Every day. I'm, I'm sitting in knowing that I'm going to talk about feelings. I'm listening to myself think yesterday as we're in Target going around the store. And I have a feeling I don't want to be here. I want to be on the road back to home. I want to let the boys shop for themselves. I want to let the boys do their own stinking decorating. And I'm, I'm listening to myself. I'm listening to my feelings. I'm listening to my agitation. I'm listening to my shortness. I'm imagining the expression that's on my face. And I feel compelled to just, why can't I just act the way that I want to act in this moment? This is how I'm wired, darn it. Anybody else? There are so many things in, in our decisions, in our choices, in our life experiences every single day. I feel compelled. I feel restricted. God has not shown up. It is 12 o'clock. He is supposed to have been here by now. Where's the provision? Where's the protection? He hasn't acted. I need to act. I need to do something. Chill out. <laughs> and I, I have all these fingers pointing at myself. I'm sitting again like a day of anniversary. I'm looking at the last 23, 23 years of my life and how I have responded to my wife. There is no other human being that can put me as high as she can. There is no other human being that can drive me as low as she can. And so often in those times when I feel low in my relationship with my bride, I bet 95% of the time it's my own feelings and it has nothing to do with reality. I get myself in trouble with my bride by assigning my feelings to what she's thinking and is going on. It's, it's a fault of mine. It's something that I'm self-aware of and know. It's something that she knows about. She, she studies me. She watches me. 
Even today, I know this, and even tomorrow, I, I know that the emotion is going to well up again when my feelings are going to overtake the moment and I am going to be, allow myself to get to a low point in my relationship with my bride in a way that has nothing to do with reality and it's just my feeling in the moment. Again, this is what Saul is doing. His feelings are driving his words. His feelings are driving his behavior. Now, this does not mean that feelings are bad. Sometimes your feelings are a very clear indicator of how you need to be responding in the moment. The Lord is using your feelings to drive you forward in his path and his light. But again, it's where we ended last week. Consider the Lord in that emotion. Consider the Lord in this moment. Is my emotion to this? Is this all me? Am I really being funneled to this singular decision by the Lord? Or do I just feel confined by all the circumstances and my feelings like this is my only option? And for Saul in this moment, he feels like his only option is to take the role of priest to himself. And he knows it's wrong. And all of Saul's ignorance, religiously, he knows what he is doing is wrong. That's why he is offering excuses. It's the people's fault, it's your fault, and it's the Philistines' fault that I had to do this. If you would have been here, Samuel, you could have done your job. But because you weren't here, I did your job for you. I know it was wrong, but I felt that I had no other option. And what does Samuel say to Saul? You acted Foolishly, And the idea is Saul is reasoning and processing and giving the excuses for doing why he did what he did. And Samuel's response as a prophet of God in his life is you acted without reason. You acted without thinking. You acted without considering the Lord. You acted without patience. And these are all things and ideas that we get in trouble in our relationship with God every single day, acting according to our emotion without thinking when we think that we're smart and doing the right thing and it's just motivated by feeling. We get in trouble in our relationship with other human beings, most often the ones that we're in the same household with, parents and children and spouses. We have all of these emotions associated with our coworkers, with strangers, as you're driving down the road, telling yourself all of these stories in your head according to your feelings that aren't lined up with what is true and what is real. Saul's decision. This moment in his life is the foundation of him being wiped away. Samuel there, Saul, what have you done? Inviting him to repentance, inviting him to confession, inviting him to get right. But Saul's loyalty, his steadfastness, his firmness, his predictable behavior is in his insecurities. His attention is always on himself. And the Lord is always taking, get your mind off of you, get your mind on me. I am your provider, I am your protector. Wait for me, listen to me, obey me, I love you. All of these emotions are coming out. So Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly without reason. 
You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. It shall not stand. The Lord has sought for himself a man after a man that is like his own heart, like his own conscience, like his own mind. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander, Nagid, over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So his 2,000 reduced down to 600 here. But listen to this proclamation out of the prophet's mouth. Your kingdom shall not stand. Getting into that, he is going to be swept away because of his disobedience to God. But what's the Lord's attention? The Lord has sought for himself a man. Specifically in this context, it's David. You can apply this to your own heart. He is seeking for you to be a man and a woman who has a heart and a mind just like his. And this is, the, this is what the New Testament conveys to us. When we respond in confession, repentance, faith, and all that Jesus Christ is and all that he has done, we are promised, here's my heart. Here's my mind. This is what I am seeking to imprint in you and to image you, in you, and to transform you into all the days of your life and ultimately that day that we get to see him face to face. Now, let's turn to Psalm 89. It's a long psalm, and once again, I've been long-winded, so that means we're going to go through this really fast. You're welcome. So I invite you already to go back and meditate on this in Psalm 89. The author is Ethan, an Ezraite. He is a contemporary and a singer along with Asaph and He-Man. First Kings defines him as a wise man. And this is sitting in the idea of loyalty, okay? So we have, uh, we're going to have Jonathan moving forward as a, as a constant loyal man to David and even continually to his father Saul and all that goes on. But ultimately, that is the image of God in Jonathan's life. Because look at Ethan's definition of God. I will sing of the mercies, and this is the Hebrew word said. And this, the definition for this word is God's loyal, steadfast, and firm love. It is a central theological idea when you sit in the study of God, but it is a, it is a central attribute of God as he has made himself known to his creatures, that he is steadfast and loyal. English word, mercy. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. This word comes up seven times as we read through this. With my mouth, not just my behaviors, with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. Again, this idea of loyalty, faithful, true. Again, this word comes up seven times in this song. 
I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish to the very heavens. Quote out of God's mouth, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. I really do believe in the moment that we just read in, in 1 Samuel 13, had Saul have repented in humility and in truth, David would have never been the king. The Lord would establish Saul's seed. But Saul is being wiped away. The Lord is seeking after a man, after his own heart, like his own heart. That man is David. Second Samuel 7, if you don't know where it is, here is the covenant and the promise that God makes to David that his throne will be for eternity. Verse 5, and the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. This is so, Ethan, he's, he's, he's taking your image and your mind in the song to God's heavenly throne room. Your faithfulness in the assembly of all the saints, not us as saints, but he's talking about the holy ones, these spirit beings that God has created that surround his throne in the heavens. This is what Ethan is referring to, the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the heavens can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty, literally the sons of God, again, these, these other creatures that he has created, can be likened to Yahweh? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the holy ones and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Or, O Lord God of hosts, of armies, again, his, his, his attentions, all the armies of heaven, who is mighty like you, O Yahweh? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Getting into creation, you rule over the raging sea, the idea of disorder and chaos there. When God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, it's, it's this whole idea that there's chaos, there's no structure, and as God is creating, he brings about his order through his power is all of this imagery. When its ways rise, you shall steal them. You have broken Rahab. This is a mythological sea creature, just like Leviathan, if you know that from the pages of the Old Testament. You have broken Rahab in pieces. As one who is slain, you have scattered your enemies with what? With your mighty arm. All that the arm and strength and his hands, all of this emphasis that it's his arm, his power, his glory. It's all him that has brought about his you know, his cre creation as he is imaging himself in all of creation. The heavens are yours, so the heights, and now the earth also is yours. The world and all of its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Debor and Hermon, both mountains and Israel, rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice, sedekah and mishpat, Hebrew words, these, again, these are central attributes that God uses to make himself known. I am choosing Abraham because he will teach his children sedekah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. 
When you look at the culture and the world around you, you feel it ooze unrighteousness and injustice all over the place. The Lord, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Do you feel blessed and happy and joyous when you hear the sound of God's victory? He is bringing justice into your life. He will bring his kingdom into this world. His justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his truth is coming. Do you hear the joyful sound? These are all the emotions and the feelings that to drive worship in regards to his grandeur, his majesty, his faithfulness, his mercy, his loyalty, his love. They walk, all of you who are rejoicing, joyful sounds coming out of your mouth and your heart, you walk. They walk, we walk, O oh Lord, in the light of your countenance and the light of your face, your presence. In your name, they rejoice all day long. In your righteousness, they are exalted. For you are the glory, the weight of their strength. In your favor, our horn, our strength, our power is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. How do you like Ethan? I love this guy. You're not going to like him in a minute because he's going to start lamenting. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One, probably in reference to Nathan, as Nathan comes and gives these, this message to David, and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people, Here's this direct link to where we were in 1 Samuel. I have found my servant David. Here's the man whose heart is like my heart. With, holy, with my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, the same hand that created, the same hand of power that was there bringing chaos into order and creation. The same hand is there establishing David and all of these promises, and ultimately they find the fulfillment in Jesus as the anointed one. Also, my arms shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the sons of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my, in my name, his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Again, that's out of 2 Samuel 7. And it's also pouring out of your heart as you look to God as your father, as your God and as the rock of your salvation, your fortress, your refuge, your deliverer. I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That firstborn definition of Jesus, he is first, he is choice, 
Israel, God defined as his firstborn, his son. Here, same thing, all this imagery, I will make him my firstborn. I will make David the highest of the kings of the earth, ultimately his seed, ultimately Jesus is the highest. He is the king of kings. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, as we just witnessed Saul do, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, and feel this in Jesus, my kindness, my loving kindness, my loyal love, my faithfulness, I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Do you believe it? Do you always feel it? Does your theology, does your faith, does your belief line up with your emotions? Not all the time. Often our, faith, our emotions are driving us in the exact opposite direction of where our faith needs to drive us. And here's where I, I love Ethan. He just poured forth awesome praises of God. I feel elated right now reading it, but I know what's coming. Ethan's theology does not line up with his circumstance. So on all the promises that God has given and all of the wonderful, precious promises that you have in his word through faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes our circumstances don't look like it. Look at verse 38. But you, Lord, you have cast off and abhorred. You've been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have taken David's crown and you've thrown it in the dirt. You've broken down all his hedges, no protection. You have brought down his strongholds to ruin. The Lord is my fortress. Where's the strength? Where's the refuge? All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach, a taunt to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and have cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Have you ever felt that way in your relationship with God? Jesus says, I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. 
But in that moment, your Lord, you've promised to provide for me, and there's no provision. You've promised to lead me, and I feel like I am abiding in darkness. Lord, is, is it me? Am I off? Have I sinned? Are my prayers bouncing off a, a steel ceiling and they're not getting to your ears and your mind and your heart? What's going on? Where are you? I read of all of these incredible promises that you have given. I'm hearing the testimony of brothers and sisters in Jesus, and they're telling me all the wonders of the Lord. Why have I never felt this way? Where are you? And look at, look, at, look at Ethan in this. He knows his theology. He knows the word of God. He knows the commands. He believes it. But in whatever his life circumstance is, and I love that it's not defined for us because that's what helps apply it to our own life. And this is why it's a, a melody of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Often you will find yourselves in moments of life where you feel like God has undone his promises to you. And you were crying out with Ethan, how long, Lord? How long? When are you going to show up? When are you going to act? Will you hide yourself? Remember Saul hiding himself, the people hiding themselves? Are you hiding yourself forever from me, Lord? Will your wrath towards me burn like fire because of my sin? Is it, is it something that I did in the past? Is it an issue that I have going on right now? Do you know that I'm going to do something in the future? Where's this loyal love that you have promised that will never leave me and never forsake me? Where's your faithfulness? Remember. And this, is, this is the cry of lament. It's... it's it's getting your heart grounded in what is true, even in all the emotions and feelings and all of your agitation that you may have going on, getting back to the Lord. Lord, remember how short my life is. My life's a vapor. If you don't come quickly, Lord, it's over like that. And I don't want my life to be vanity. I want my life to be filled with joy in the Lord. The work that I do... The work in life, it's hard, it's sweaty, it's tedious. I don't just want to go through this rut every single day of my life. I want joy in what I do because I want to know it's sourced from you. I want to know that what I'm doing, regardless of how monotonous and meaningless that it may feel, that you've placed this labor in my hand because then it gives me meaning and definition and permanence for eternity, not just this temporary vapor. Lord, remember how short my life is. I want it to count for your glory. I don't want it to be consumed with other things. For what futility... Have you created all the children of men? Again, he's looking at life. What man can live and not see death? As Corey began this morning, as we were listening to the gospel, 10 out of 10 people die. What man, what woman can live, can have this life experience and not see death? Can you deliver your life from the power of the grave? No. Can your God? Yes. And where are you, God? Save me. I need your life now in this moment. 
I don't want to live separate. I don't want to live in my feelings and my emotion and all of my weirdnesses and my personality quirkiness and those kinds of things. Lord, I want to live in boldness and confidence of you. How long, Lord, remember me, O Lord. Remember, my life is short and just but a vapor. Verse 49, Lord, where are your former? I've read all of the, about your former loving kindnesses, which you have sworn to David in your truth. Remember, Lord, the shame of your servants. Again, you can feel this individually. You can feel it in the church, in our own culture. You can feel it just in, you know, in our country as a citizen of our nation. And you can feel shame and reproach. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. How I bear in my bosom, in my heart, in the core of who I am, the shame of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. What's the conclusion? Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. I love the Psalms because they're honest. Saul drives me nuts because I see his dishonesty with himself and his feelings and his circumstances and his emotions and how those things play out in his life. And Saul drives me nuts because when I look at him, I see a mirror of me so often. How many times have I made excuses for how I feel and how I feel confined in the moment and I have no other choice but to do and say this. And when I do and I say this, I know I know that I am disobeying the commands of the Lord, and I do it anyways. I can sit in my own life, in my own context. I know exactly why the Lord's loving kindness is not towards me in this moment, because I have done A, B, and C. Anybody else ever sit in those things? I don't deserve to be loved, and I don't, and you don't. But I know the word of God. I know I have experienced his firm, steadfast, unmoving love since the moment he made himself known to me. In those moments where I have been the Saul and find myself making excuses, God is always there, tender with me. What are you doing? It's not the heart that I'm looking for you, Blake. The heart that I'm looking for to be imaged in you is the heart of the man that I sought for myself that has a heart like me, the heart of David. And when David was caught in his sin and confronted in his sin of murder and adultery, what did David do? Wash me. My sin, it's, always, it's right here in my vision, and I can't see around it. It's the monster in the room. But if you wash me, I'll be as white as snow. If you cleanse me through the sacrifice of your son, you promise to make me clean and holy. Lord, as your child, as one who has already expressed faith in Jesus Christ, you tell me, and I believe and I've experienced your Holy Spirit indwelling me and coming upon me and working through me in my daily life. Lord, in this moment of, of, my, of responding to my feelings, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, the beginning of Ethan's psalm is it's just pouring forth joy in regards to who God is just, you know, again, he's, he's unclothed the, the veil that he, we feel that he's hidden behind and says, here I am in all of my glory and all of my majesty. That's the beginning of that psalm. But how many of you feel like Ethan in that moment of lament, that moment where you feel confined and restricted and you feel dirty or you feel shame or it's the behavior of somebody else, you feel restricted. Again, take those feelings and consider your Lord and consider your Savior. Pray to him. Are you out of sorts with him? Get right with him. Are you waiting for his provision? Then wait for his provision and remind yourself that he is provider. Are you waiting for the next instruction? Then wait for his next step of instruction of what you ought to do rather than trying to figure it out yourself. Be patient. Where is God? Right here with you, right now, always. Why can't I feel him? Because he doesn't want you to feel him in this moment. He wants you to trust him. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach Jesus Christ to yourself. Tell yourself to shut up. Your feelings in that moment, this is not real. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this again. I get victory. We sang a song earlier that in, when I am in the Lord's will, oh, there's freedom. There, if I am doing what God wants me to do, regardless of how tedious, how hard, how sweaty, how smelly, whatever it may be, if the Lord is there and I'm doing the Lord's will, there's freedom. If I'm doing my own, there's the shackles. You know, there's the burden. There's the where are you. Do you understand? Do you feel all this? Worship team, come on up. Again, from the very beginning of this morning, just that clear call of the good news of the gospel. I invite every single one of you to come up and grab the elements of communion. If you need Jesus as your savior, you need to remember his body. Our God became a man and became just like you and lived a sinless life to sacrifice himself for you. His body, he gave it willingly for the remission, for the removal of all of your sins, all of your insecurities, all of your fears, all of your trembling, all of your excuses Jesus has died for. Remember his body in confidence and boldness that he's there to clean, that he's there to restore that your sins have already been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. His blood, that cup, it's an image of his covenant. I have made promises to you, and they are forever promises. In Jesus, these are things that will never be removed. They will never be wiped away. You may need the punishment and discipline of the Lord in your life, but it doesn't mean that he has swept you away. He has promised to give you the new mind and the new heart. He has promised to dwell in you. He has promised to keep you. He has promised to that day in the future that you are gonna see him as he is because he is going to make you like him forevermore. 
Praise the Lord for his steadfastness, his firmness, his loyalty. Pour out your heart in worship, whatever that looks like, in the next couple of songs that we have. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.